0: Hello friends, I'm delighted to get to share with you and deeply grateful for this invitation. We find ourselves in this grave sort of circumstance historically, socially, politically and we find ourselves in a grave and challenging circumstance uh, based upon the, the current milieu in which we find ourselves for those of us who are Christians. Namely because that in many ways Christianity has begun to be seen as something like a bad public joke that regardless of the perspective from which others are looking at Christianity, it seems just to be in a bad place altogether, that we have some sort of scandalized the witness, scandalized the nature of what it means to be Christian. Uh, for those who are secularists or those who on the left, the, the seeming uh, being captured by the right of, of white American evangelicalism is seen by secularists and those on the left as a deep sort of scandal and a mockery of the gospel of the poor, long-suffering Jesus. Similarly, those on the left might look at Christian progressivism and the way in which it is wrapped up in woke culture, the ways in which it is uh, carrying about its own sort of mechanisms of perhaps shame or perhaps its sort of power. And those on the right might look at that and see that that form of Christian witness itself is also a scandal. But in any case, we find ourselves in this deeply problematic time, this deeply challenging. Time, in which we desperately need to find a way into, to reconfigure the nature of Christian witness, to reconfigure the nature, nature of Christian political witness. There are some who suggest that um, in getting at Christian witness, in getting at the genius of Christianity, that we should insist that Christianity is not political. That is, they say that for us to be truly Christian, we must repeatedly emphasize the refrain, Christianity is not political. And I want to suggest from the start, that is a deeply flawed claim. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that that sort of claim is something like a modernist in pious clothing. This is a a deeply flawed understanding of what Christianity is. Moreover, I would say it simply does not understand the most basic claims of what Christianity is. Christianity, I'm arguing, uh, throughout this book, uh, Scandalous Witness, I'm arguing that Christianity is inherently political. Not that it merely has political implications, but that it is inherently political. Or, as as I use the phrase in the book, it is itself an alternative politic. However, In this introductory note, let me make sure I make clear from the start that in trying to recover the rightful notion that Christianity is political, we must avoid the notion that that means we can be reduced to some sort of partisan position on the right or on the left. So as I argue throughout the book, we need a Christian political witness that is neither right nor left, or also, as I add, nor religious by religious i mean christianity must not be reduced to some sort of privatized notion of private spirituality that's merely about the afterlife but that instead it is a politic it's a concern with the realities of society it's concerned with the realities of history that are thoroughly political but again neither right nor left so tonight in this uh, in this lecture i'm pleased to give you an overview of some of the themes, some of the propositions that I develop in the book. I will say that uh, we would love for you to come over. We just recently uh, released a brand new online course that if you would like more resources or participate in the online course or would like to get a free copy of the book through the online course, please visit us over at leseecamp.com and you get a lot more resources and access to that online course. But, to the book. Um, In Christian orthodoxy, little o orthodoxy, in the great Christian tradition. I'm arguing in these propositions that we may find the resources then to find a rightful Christian political witness, even though it will be one that is scandalous to be sure, but scandalous in a way that's not scandalous like the right or the left today, but in an altogether more challenging, more beautiful, and more compelling sort of way. First, we must begin with a claim about history. Historians, in talking about uh, various forms of construing the meaning of history, suggest that there are some who think that history is just one damn thing after another. That is, there are some who believe that history is not going anywhere, that history is simply meaningless. that um, in in the in the view of the the so-called Mona Lisa of the twentieth century entitled "The Scream," which we might see, as one representation of this, that when we look at history, overcome with its oppression, overcome with its injustice, it seems that all that we can do is simply to scream at the meaninglessness of it all, the existential angst that's exhibited by history, because it seems to be going nowhere and for no good purpose. But instead, Christians, Jews, and Muslims have always insisted that history is going somewhere. That history is the sort of stage upon which God is working the great drama of God's redemptive purposes. And it is going somewhere, namely for the Christians and the Jews, the language of the Hebrew prophets, for example, is going towards and headed toward new heavens and new earth in which all things will be made right. This itself is a historical and a political claim which we must always hold up first. But here's a second related terribly important corollary that Christians themselves particularly make. And that is this, that the end of history, the goal of history, where history is headed, has already broken into human history. It's already been inaugurated. That is, in the end, the final consummation of history when all things are made right, when the blind will receive their sight, when the nations will learn war no more, when the dead will be raised... That this end, this goal of history, of justice, of righteousness, of all things being made right, has already been inaugurated in, in our midst, in the midst of human history. And that we now are receiving down payments of resurrecting power. Down payments of where the world is headed through the power of God's Spirit so that we may enact the end of history even now. This is seen, for example, in this picture... Uh, in in the folk art of the Quaker Edward Hick in the early days of uh, the American experiment in which he used this language from the prophets about a lamb lying down with a lion and so forth as, as a way of representing the way in which the Quakers saw themselves as embodying, as living out this vision of a peaceable kingdom. They themselves, you see in the background of the picture, find themselves in council with the indigenous population, not seeing them as their enemies, but seeing them, as, as the Quakers would say, as their friends, as seeing the light of God in all people. And because of the possibility of being a peaceable people, they sought to enter into relationships as people who were bearing witness to the end of history, even in their own day. So, history has a direction. And two, the end of history, the goal of history, the peaceable end of history is already broken into history even now. Here's a third and perhaps more problematic or provocative sort of claim that we have to grapple with. And that is this. To envision the nation state, to envision any nation state, not just the United States, but to envision any nation state then as the primary bearer of the salvific work of God in the world is to bastardize Christian hope. That is to try to take the notion of a nation state, again any nation state, and try to wed it or bed it with Christian eschatological vision, with the Christian hope of where history is headed, is a bastardization of the beauty of the proclamation of the gospel. This has a long legacy in our own land. Uh, It has a long legacy of speaking in messianic, of speaking in salvific terms regarding the nation state. Go back, for example, to founding father Thomas Jefferson, who would speak of the United States as the world's best hope. Or you think, for example, about Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, who said that the United States and its form of government was the last best hope of earth. But this is not just a Republican thing. Again, it's important that we we begin to see the ways in which this is a a common, nonpartisan American conviction that stands at deep tension with the proclamation of basic Christian convictions. It's not just a Republican thing. So for example, off on the left, we might say, uh, there's great messianic pretense among the, the Democratic President Woodrow Wilson, himself a good Presbyterian. And presiding over the so-called Great War, World War I, he saw the making of war and the United States entering into the making of the so-called Great War as the war to end all wars. Remember, the notion of the end of war is the Jewish and the Christian vision of what God will do. Right? But here's Wilson saying, no, by our warring, we will bring about the end of all wars. Clearly, from our perspective now, quite naive. But nonetheless, it had this sort of messianic, salvific pretense to it, wedding it, the nation state, with the Christian eschatological vision. Or listen to this. In another speech Wilson said this, I have lived to see a day in which after saturating myself most of my life in the history and traditions of America, I seem suddenly to see the culmination of American hope and history, the sight of a great nation responding to and acting upon those dreams and saying at last the world knows America as the savior of the world. Well, I don't want to again, left and right. Another example from the so-called right. President Trump, in his 2019 State of the Union address, said, "We must keep America first in our hearts, and we must always keep faith in America's destiny—that one nation under God must be the hope and the promise, and the light and the glory among all the nations of the world." Note, again, the salvific, messianic pretense of it. Or let's go back over to the left again with one highly prominent Democrat. Madeleine Albright, first female Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton, once said this regarding the war-making force of the United States. She said, If we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall. We see further into the future. This sort of um, divinization of America, we might say. This sort of, again, messianic pretense given to the nation-state goes back, as we said, all the way, many ways, to uh, to the founding fathers. But we can see this in the very central, the halls of power in Washington D. itself. So if you go to the Capitol building, and there you see in the Capitol Dome itself the so-called Apotheosis of Washington commissioned by Lincoln during the Civil War, in which, at that time, of course, the Union itself was seen as a necessity for world history. The world apotheosis, which this painting is called the Apotheosis of Washington, apotheosis means literally the raising of a person to the rank of a god, or the glorification of a person as an ideal. And here you see George Washington himself in the apotheosis seated amidst the gods. Beneath Washington is the goddess Columbia, And then Washington is flanked by female figures representing liberty and victory or fame. What I'm trying to suggest through all these examples is that uh, first a sort of critical diagnostic sort of capacity we must develop, train within ourselves. We must train ourselves to diagnose this sort of pretense. We must train ourselves with a critical eye to see the sort of messianic pretense. We must train ourselves to extricate ourselves from this theological captivity. Note, it's a theological captivity often of Christians' own making. And it must be stated clearly then the United States is not the hope of the world. Instead, in the biblical witness we have this long-standing tradition in which the Bible repeatedly again and again and again stands against imperialism. We have Pharaoh. We have the condemnations of Assyria, the calling to account of Babylon. We have in the New Testament Rome and its Herods and its Pilots strutting with pretense throughout the earth. And then in the midst of that, in this climactic moment in the, in, in the announcement of the coming of a Messiah, is the Song of Mary, in which Mary herself, pregnant with the Messiah, calls to account the mighty calls to account the powerful, and says it will be the mighty who are brought down from their thrones, it will be the rich who go away hungry, and it will be the poor who will be filled and who will be raised up. That at the center of it all is a critique of imperialist power. It's a critique of those who think they can strut through the earth and tell the world, tell the nations how things are going to be. This brings to mind, of course, the old uh, classic aphorism by Lord Acton, who's famously known for this phrase, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now this is a, this is a phrase, a little bit of wisdom, that um, the philosophers and the theologians uh, might want to take account in, in some very legit, legitimate sort of ways. But it's nonetheless a sort of conventional wisdom that points to our experience, human experience, that power does oftentimes corrupt, and moreover, that empires, as they accumulate to themselves power, as they amass to themselves power, often overreach. And in their overreaching, there comes their own undoing, precisely because of the corrupting possibilities of power. We find ourselves in our own day, in which some would make the argument... um, that perhaps the United States and its imperial conceits is already in its death pangs. Regardless of whether we accept this or not, regardless of what you might think of that claim, um, it's important to realize that to take a long view about imperialist power, to take a long view about the fact that that the Bible insists that all empires fall, that all empires will fall, and that the conceit of power corrupts and that the conceit of power, often we see the powers falling in on themselves because of such power. Uh, to, to take this sort of view is neither pessimistic nor is it unpatriotic. It's important that we be able to make this sort of objective critique without seeing it as being pessimistic, pessimistic or, a, or a hater, right? It doesn't indicate lo- lack of love for one's country. It's sort of this sort of flat-footed biblical realism that broadens the possibilities for our socio-political posture in the world, if we will realize uh, that upholding any sort of partisan political agenda in an imperialist pursuit, a sort of uh, power for our nation state, we'll realize that that is inherently problematic and ultimately doomed to failure. Then all of a sudden we have different options and different possibilities for making more positive contributions to the world. Let me just lay this very, very quickly. 4 subpoints here, right? One, if we recognize that Jesus explicitly rejected the so-called satanic imperialist shape for his kingdom. This was one of the temptations he rejects in the wilderness. Two, if we recognize that the long history of the Christian church precedes the United States empire. And three, if we recognize that the Christian church shall extend well beyond the life cycle of the United States, for this is the promise that Jesus made to Peter, right? Then four, we become free out of that matrix of convictions. We become free to be on the one hand both judge and critic and at the same time contributor and citizen. Holding both of these things together knowing that the existence of the U.S. empire is not our ultimate historical concern. Terribly important convictions that we must hold on to in the midst of all of this. There is, however, as we continue to fill this out, another sort of agenda that we often see in Christian political witness in our day that I think we need to learn to critique. And that is this, that the biblical values agenda that we often find, I want to suggest, is, is an unhelpful way of approaching, of, of construing or framing American political witness. That is, it's more like um I think, the practice of redaction. Let me, let me give you an example to show you what I mean by this. Redaction, of course, is taking some sort of text and blocking out parts that we might find problematic or that we don't want other people to read. So this is a, this is a silly example. Imagine this short narrative. This is how he said it, to which I strongly objected. You are an ass. You should be ashamed of yourself. Imagine taking that same text and redacting it very simply, just blocking out a few words. Now all of a sudden what this redaction does, this is how I strongly objected, you're an ass, you should be ashamed of yourself. This simple redaction has completely reversed the meaning of the text simply by pulling out some of the context, simply by pulling out some of the words. I'm using this as a somewhat silly or trivial example, though, of what often happens, I think, in the so called biblical values work that often gets done in the public square. Then many people think that what we must reduce or what they have practically reduced Christian witness to is pushing for certain so called biblical values. But it's crucial that we as Christians realize that the Bible itself is this beautiful, complex, broad, compelling, winsome narrative. And if we go and pick out bits and pieces here and there and trot those out into the public square, we might be subverting the very basic meaning of the narrative itself. The narrative itself is full of many characteristics and traits full of a, of a depiction of the particular ways in which God has sought to enter into human history, the way in which God, through Jesus of Nazareth, has entered into our midst as a servant, has entered into our midst as a humble one, has entered into our midst as one eschewing power of loving enemies of forgiving seventy times seven of teaching us the long-suffering nature of love and that it's through the long-suffering nature of love that the power of God is shown in the world. Not trotting out simple propositions, not trotting out certain simple biblical values, but a whole story out of which we are called to live. A related sort of thing uh, that we want to point to in this regard is the so-called long tradition of of, of Constantinianism. We don't have time to talk uh, at length about this, but one of the, one of the great um, troubling manifestations of this came with, uh, with Charlemagne in the 8th century. Charlemagne, Charlemagne went to go and conquer the pagan Saxons, He, uh, the Christian king of the Franks. As he went to conquer them, for example, what he did was he took with himself a baptismal policy. He had one particular important, we might say, biblical value that he wanted to carry with him that he did carry with him, and he set forth a baptismal policy. And it was this. You can either come be baptized or you can die. It's a simple choice. Accept this biblical value of baptism and if you do not accept it, then you can die. But note that what's happening here with Charlemagne is the use of immense socio-political force, the use of military might, the use of the force of empire to propagate a so-called biblical value. And yet because it ignores the broad expanse of the manner in which God in Christ has brought about God's good purposes in Jesus of Nazareth, then he's undercutting the very narrative which he purports to be supporting by his spread of this biblical value of baptism. Now, some might say, look, we know better than that, right? We're not not medieval Christians. We know better than this sort of holding together such power with the gospel. Well, that's what some people say, but we might ask ourselves the question, well, but do we really know better, right? Because if one looks at the unfolding of the American experiment, of course, democracy and capitalism are also often seen as practices that must prevail. And they've often been seen as practices which warring was permissible then to spread democracy and capitalism. What we call the Cold War, for example, became a very hot war in Central America in service to these things. Or helping underwrite Pinochet as a dictator in Chile by some, some in the American, American system. Or the dropping of the atom bomb, which is seen as a way to set aside all sorts of norms and limits upon war because we had to win in this way in the name for some of a utilitarian calculus for American lives. But then we ask ourselves, um, is this the way to which we are called to participate in bearing witness to the so-called values, bearing witness to the practices of Christ? The whole of the biblical witness points us to different sorts of practices. Well, I want to move now to um, kind of began to point us toward a more constructive, a, a few considerations for for our constructive project. I've given us several considerations for things that we must diagnose, several things we might perhaps need to deconstruct. But let me point in, in very broad strokes here, because we only have time for very broad strokes, to point us toward a, a constructive task. I love this quote by uh, Dag Hammarskjold, who was one of the most uh, well-known uh, Secretary uh, Generals of the United Nations in the 20th century. In his book, Markings, he has this beautiful line where he says, Your responsibility is a two. You can never save yourself by a not two. Our job here is not to go about critiquing. Uh, There's places at which we must do critique. There's places at which we must do uh, the hard work of deconstruction. Right, But in the end, that's not the goal. The goal is to describe what it is we are for. To describe what it is that we are striving to do and to be in the world. So in closing then for this, uh, this sort of d- d- constructive task, let me point back to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 2, In days to come they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is just one of the many prophetic texts that points to uh, the, the hope of human history, the goal for where hum- human history is headed. This apparently was a text that was uh, important to Dag Hammarskjold himself because when he uh, set up a meditation room at at the UN he he has this this text cited on the outside of the meditation room but he and others who, who designed the meditation room there said that they didn't want any sort of religious symbolism in the room itself but instead what they did is they took a six and a half ton block of iron ore that even today you can go see in the midst of the meditation room there in the UN. And look at this commentary from Hammerschald about that. He says, The material of the stone leads our thoughts to the necessity for choice between destruction and construction, between war and peace. Of iron man has forged his swords, of iron he has also made his ploughshares. Of iron he has constructed tanks, but of iron he has likewise built homes for man. The block of iron ore is part of the wealth we have inherited on this earth of ours. How are we to use it? The question that Hammerskjold sets before us is the basic fundamental question of a politic. To what will we give ourselves? To what will we give our lives, to hostility, to all sorts of animosity, to all sorts of partisanship which wrought at its worst is warfare? To what will we give ourselves? Was, will we give ourselves instead to the constructive work of God in the world? From a Christian perspective, what we might say then is that the Christian witness invites us to what we might call an ad hoc political witness. That is, rather than being any sort of proponent of an ideological position of right or left, rather than giving ourselves to some sort of utopian partisan position of right or left or any other sort of utopian partisan position, Because we are a people who know that the kingdom of God has not yet come in fullness, because we thereby know that the power of brokenness in the world still can corrupt any political policy, any set of laws, any sort of political arrangement, we know that any one set up in its best purposes is soon to fall under the sway of the corruption of the power, to use the language of the New Testament, the power of sin. And therefore we need not, moreover should not, give ourselves to any partisan political agenda. But instead, do the work that is set before us of dealing with whatever oppression is before us and finding ways of liberation to be brought to bear. To set ourselves before any injustice, whatever it might be, and find ways to bring about the work of justice in that context. To find any sort of context in which lies And the power of deceit is being employed and find ways to let our yes be yes and our no be no and the power of truth to be brought to bear. Holding with us all the resources of the biblical tradition, all the resources of the biblical narrative to bear upon that given situation and that given context. For what will we use the wealth of our lives, the wealth of your lives as college students, the wealth of, of our lives as we develop our vocations, the wealth of our lives in our communities, to the work of peaceableness, to the work of construction or the work of destruction and the work of animosity and the work of partisanship. This is the fundamental root choice that we must make in our political witness in the world. With regard to all of this from Dag Hammarskjold and Isaiah 2, There's a remarkable historical marker, a troubling historical marker, really, in Nashville down on 8th Avenue at the site of the Nashville Plow Works. Uh, The marker reads this this way. Nashville Plow Works, site of a farm implement factory operated by Messrs. Sharp and Hamilton previous to the war between the states. With the outbreak of hostilities, they reversed the biblical injunction and produced swords of excellent quality for the Confederacy. With the coming of the Federal Army, the making of swords was discontinued. We have in this sort of historical marker this remarkable acceptance that rather than holding on to the scandal of the gospel, namely of beating our swords into plowshares, whether we take that with with direct reference to violence and nonviolence or whether we take that in a more larger metaphorical broad sense for the notion of our work in the world, But here we have this particular instance where the biblical injunction itself gets turned on its head that the scandal of the gospel is scandalized by turning it into something it was never intended to be. And so here in this day in which we find ourselves with all sorts of animosity, all sorts of hostility, all sorts of political and social disturbance, we are called again to ask ourselves, how might we, rightfully bear witness to a new rightful scandal which is actually of course a very old scandal going back to the language of the apostle paul that to find in the way of christ the wisdom of god which is a scandal to the powers that be but nonetheless is the manner by which god has chosen to save the world so again i'm very grateful to have gotten to share with you uh, all of this material look forward to some dialogue and discourse with you Again, if you want more, I would love for you to go over and join us on our online course where we're talking a lot more about this material. But in any case, I'm grateful again for the invitation and appreciative for your work in this regard and your participation.